Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing a song for the dreaming of the world that we may dream as one with every voice with every song we will move this world along today for spirit in action we'll be listening to part 2 of presentations made on September 14th in Eau Claire for an event called Voices for Peace 2008 there were booths food workshops and more but there is especially a main stage with special speakers and musicians Today, we're going to listen to three of these presenters. That same weekend, by the way, there was an air show held in Eau Claire, and from time to time, you'll hear military jets go screaming overhead, and those on stage just have to raise their own volume. As one participant announced, the Voices for Peace will not be silenced by the thunder of war machines. And they weren't. In part one, you heard one of two main speakers from the Wheels of Justice campaign. Today, we'll listen to their second presenter, Henry Knorr, and I'll let the Wheels of Justice coordinator introduce him. Then, we'll go on to musician Bruce O'Brien, and we'll end up with Eugene Cherry, an Iraqi vet with the Speak for Peace tour. All guests on today's Spirit in Action. Henry Knorr. He is 62 years old and a semi-retired freelance writer and activist. He used to be a technology columnist at the San Francisco Chronicle until he was fired in 2003 for participating in an anti-war demonstration the day that Bush attacked Iraq and also for his involvement in Palestinian solidarity work. Henry spent a total of six months in Palestine, two weeks in Gaza under the auspices of the International Solidarity Movement, five weeks with the ISM again in 2003. Two months in 2005 with the Palestine Summer Encounter Program, mainly in Beit Sahur and Bethlehem. While he was there, he was volunteering with the International Middle East Media Center. And then he's also volunteered with the Tel Remedia Project in Hebron in 2006. So he's got a lot of experience in Palestine. And currently he's a member of the Bay Area Group Act Against Torture. And he's on the board and program council for the radio station at KPFA in San Francisco. So welcome, Henry Knorr. Thanks, Josh. Hi. You know, I noticed that this event is specifically refers to Iraq and Afghanistan. Palestine is not on the list. That's understandable. Most of us don't think of Palestine as something that, you know, that we are directly involved with. We think of it as a, sort of an age-old conflict and not something that we need to... And, my, and frankly, most of us probably don't know very much about it. I certainly didn't until after September 11, 2001. I started trying to step back and take a look at what's happening in this world and I quickly came to the conclusion that Palestine was at the center of the conflicts that we face. I should say by way of background that 
<laughs> aside from all the things that Josh said, I'm from a Jewish family. You know, I was raised, I went to, went to temple and raised money for to plant trees in Israel and thought it was, you know, great stuff. I was always a little, I confess, a little bit uneasy about the idea of uh, taking away a country where other people were living uh, on the justification that our ancestors supposedly lived there 2,000 years ago. It seemed to me that it would be a pretty messy world if everybody thought they had a right to take back the land where they claim their ancestors were two or 3,000 years ago. But I didn't ever do much about it. I wasn't actively involved. I didn't know very much about the issue until, as I said, after September 11th. And and in in 2002, I was uh, actually planning to go on a vacation in Greece just two weeks. I had been wanting to go there for a long time, and my wife and we uh, bought the tickets and got the guidebooks and started mapping out the itinerary. And that, if you know anything, you remember spring of 2002 was the time when the Israelis uh, went on the offensive and invaded, reinvaded the West Bank area they had conquered originally in 1967, but they had backed off a little bit, gave the Palestinians a little bit of autonomy in 2002. They crashed back in there very, very violently. And so I started reading about this, and I thought, wow, you know, I'm going to go... <laughs> travel the I'm from California <laughs> whatever it is six, 8,000 miles or whatever to go all around the Aegean Sea and look at ruins and stuff and meanwhile another 500 miles further on there's all this murder and mayhem going on and I got that idea planted in the back of my head and I couldn't quite live with that so my wife and I we decided to it's too late to change the tickets <laughs> we got another ticket to fly we flew into Greece got another ticket and flew on to to Israel and went to work as uh, human rights volunteers. It was a life-changing experience, I can tell you that. If uh, anybody, any of you ever have the opportunity to go there and try to see a little bit of the world from the Palestinian perspective, I recommend it highly. Since then, as Josh said, I've been back a total of six months. And rather than trying to you know, give you a lot of analysis or history or rhetoric or anything, I just want to try to describe some of the places where I spent time during my visits to Palestine as a human rights worker you know this is a great park and you're lucky to have be able to have an event in such a nice place the downside is that i can't show you my slides which i usually rely on because uh it's great to see what it looks like most of us don't have much of an impression because we never see anything on the media about what palestine is really like except when there's a picture of an explosion or military action or something but i want to talk if i have time here about three places one is a, a village that I spent five weeks in called Jayus. It's only about eight or ten miles away from Tel Aviv, which is, you know, uh, the biggest city in uh, in Israel. It's on uh, hills. That, uh, Tel Aviv is on the coast. Most of the Israeli population is on the coast. It, when you go a little bit inland, the, the hills rise up, and, and that's where the Palestinians live. Is they were chased out of uh, coastal areas before. Jaius is a village of about 3,000, uh, used to be about 3,500 people, uh, people have left there. It sits on the hillside, but their lands uh, extend down onto the fertile plain below. It's some of the richest agricultural era, land in the whole Middle East. Traditionally, it's been very peaceful and prosperous. They grow fruits and vegetables, oranges in particular, and olives, and all kinds of fruit and vegetables that they've traditionally supplied, uh, used to supply both to Israel and throughout the West Bank. When I went there, it was in November 2003. Israel had just built in that area what they call the separation barrier, sometimes called the wall. Sometimes the defenders say, oh, it's only a fence. What it is in Jayus 
It's a huge gouge through the landscape. It's like hundreds of feet wide. It's two double-lane roads, an electronic high-tech fence through the middle, ditches on both sides, oceans of razor wire rolled up all around it, plowed right through the people's farmland. It was confiscated from them to build this thing. You know, from Jayus up on the hill, you can see what's called the Green Line, the traditional, the, the uh internationally recognized border between Israel's territory and the Palestinian territory. You know, if they had built a wall, they say, you know, to keep terrorists out or suicide bombers, whatever. If they had built a wall on their border, you know, you can say, well, that's not a good solution. That's not the way to solve problems in the world is to build walls. But at least it would have been understandable. In fact, where they put the wall was right around the edge of the village, between the village and its land. So the people are left on one side, and the land that they've depended on and that they've owned for centuries is cut off to them. They try to protest. People say, well, a lot of people say, well, how come the Palestinians are so violent? Why don't they try nonviolence? Where's the Palestinian Gandhi or Martin Luther King? Well, I can tell you, they, they have been waging a nonviolent struggle for decades. When I got there... Just in the previous year, while that wall was under construction, just in this one village of 3,000 or so people, they had had 39 nonviolent demonstrations to protest the confiscation of their land by this wall. Most of them are repressed violently. The standard Israeli tactic for crowd control, when it's a little different if the protesters are, are uh, Israeli Jews, but if they're Arabs, the standard technique... The first weapon is sound concussion grenades and tear gas. And then if that doesn't work, they start with what they call rubber bullets. It sounds kind of innocuous, a rubber bullet. What they actually are steel bullets with a rubber coating. They're not quite as devastating as, an, as a standard bullet, but they can definitely be lethal. And, and that's just routine. Every time there's one of these nonviolent demonstrations, they open up with that kind of weaponry. When I got there... One feature of life is that uh, the soldiers come into the village, Israeli soldiers come into the village, not every night, but three, four times a week in the middle of the night uh, when everybody's asleep, and they start setting off sound bombs to wake people up, to scare people, shooting in the air. And one of their favorite games is over there people, uh, you know, the water delivery system isn't very good and water is scarce. So almost everybody has a big tank on top of their house. And when there's water through the pipes, they fill up the tank. So then, you you know, you have it in gravity, delivers it, even if there's no water later on when you need it, you, it comes from the tank. Well, the Israeli soldiers come in and, and uh, shoot holes in the water tanks for sport. And they like to provoke people. And sometimes the kids, the young men uh, particularly go out and they throw stones. These are against, you know, armored jeeps and uh, tanks sometimes, usually just the jeeps. The stones are really symbolic. I mean, you, you know, we could argue is that throwing rocks is that violence or, or what, but... It's certainly not any threat, but to the Israelis, it becomes grounds to grab these kids and throw them in jail. Well, we could talk about the legal system, but I don't want to get into that. But Because of their protests, in addition to the demonstrations, they also got some lawyers, and they do have a few allies in Israel. They went to court, to the Israeli Supreme Court, to protest the wall, to say that it was uh, there was no justification. Nobody had accused them of any suicide bombing or anything else, and there was no grounds for confiscating their land this way. The court, Israel's a funny place. It has this veneer of legality. So the court deliberated about this and said, okay, well, you can build a wall there and uh, put the land on Israel's side, but you have to have gates and you have to have a system of permits so that if people are well-behaved, you're going to give them a permit 
to go work their land. Well, I got there just after the permit system had was first implemented. It turned out that they did set up these gates, and they did issue permits, but the whole permit system was completely erratic, arbitrary. Many people were denied permits for no reason, no justification provided. Some people, like seven-year-olds, got permits. Adults got no permits. Grandfathers sometimes got permits, but their working age sons didn't. Nobody could get a permit for hired help, which they need at the peak seasons, the harvest season. It was completely erratic. Permits had to be renewed every every three months, and then they would get denied again. So for a while, the village tried to, people met, and they said, okay, well, we're going to, this is not a viable system. We're going to refuse to accept the permits. We're going to stand together. But... It didn't work. They, their whole livelihood depends on access to the land, and their, uh, if they didn't get, couldn't get to their crops, their crops would, you know, it's a hot country, and if they couldn't get out there to irrigate them, think the, these orange trees and olive trees would die. So basically, the attempt at a boycott didn't work, and the people who had permits uh, went to work. So that brings us to the issue of these gates. And a lot of the time I spent there, what we were actually doing was what, what was called gate watch. We were taking notes, observations, and actually the, the records that we kept were uh, eventually entered into a court case in Israel. It's still going on about all this, but the gates were supposed to be open for half an hour in the morning, half an hour in midday, and half an hour in the late afternoon to allow people to come back to the village. It was so arbitrary and so infuriating. <laughs> you know, people ask, oh, how come they're so angry? If you put yourself in their shoes, on any given day, you never knew whether the gates were actually going to open or not. Sometimes they were closed. They, they were shortly before I was there. They had been closed for four weeks straight. A lot of people lost their trees because they were not opened at all during that time. When I was there, they would be open some days and not other days. I would estimate that um, out of a five-day week, maybe three times they would open them on time. One time they would open them late, anywhere from a half hour to two hours late. But one time they would open them half an hour early. And the way they ran the system, they didn't leave them open for half an hour. They would open them for the people who were there at the time, process them through, let some of them through, hassle some of them, harass them, deny some of them for very inexplicable reasons, and then they would lock the gate up again. But you never knew which day was going to be the day they were going to open them early. So you had to be there, if you needed to get to your land, you had to be there early every day, because that might be the day they were going to come early. But most of the days they would come late. So the routine is that all these farmers are lined up sitting out there in the sun waiting, waiting, waiting for this completely arbitrary system that they have no control over. Some things that, that I witnessed happening, one time while they were waiting, uh, some of the guys uh, had tractors, some of them just came on foot, some of them had, many of them had donkey carts. So while they're waiting, it's often, as I said, would last for hours, they would you know, let the donkey loose from the uh, cart and the guys would be sprawled out on the ground waiting. And one, one guy, Jamal, his donkey wandered off, and he wandered close to the wall, to, to the electronic fence that's in the middle of this whole thing. I don't know, he was looking for food or something. And he set off the electronic sensors, and the, there's no signal back, no feedback to the people there, but the soldiers get the message. So this jeep comes racing over the hill. They see the donkey there. The donkey's not doing any harm to anything. They unlocked the gate. They told the guy, Jamal, the donkey, to wait. They processed through the other people, checked their paperwork, which they do every day, even though they know them perfectly well. And when it got at the, at the very end, they called Jamal over, and they told him he couldn't go through because his donkey went too close to the, to the wall.
they turned him down and told him he had to come back at lunch. If, they, if he came back at the midday opening, they would uh, let him through. So he and I were left. I don't speak much Arabic. I didn't spoke even less then, but tried to chat a little bit. And he would, you know, express a lot of frustration and told about how he needed to work his land and everything. But anyway, he and I came back at lunchtime when they had told him they would open it. Soldiers came back in the Jeep. He's waiting there. I'm observing. They came. They opened it up. They talked to him. And they lectured him about how his donkey went too close to the gate, and so they weren't going to let him through. I should say that this gate is like about three-quarters of a mile down the hill from the village. So he had slept down there with this donkey to try to get through. They turned him down again, and he had to go back. But before he did that, he, uh, you know, he turned around. You could just see the frustration in his face and the despair. And he, he, he this is an older guy, you know, my age, <laughs> 50 or 60 or something. He pantomimed to me the putting on a suicide belt and exploding himself. You know, he wasn't going to do it. I'm not sure. I'm sure he's, you know, he's not going to do it. But, it, but it's an expression of the frustration and the helplessness that, that people feel when they're subject to that kind of arbitrariness. Well, there's lots more stories I could tell you about J.U.S., but I want to tell you about a couple of other places. In 2005, I went and spent some time in an even smaller village, a place called Gawis. It has a population that varies. Some people are only there part of the time. Uh, it's about basically four families, about six extended families, about 60 people at the most. There's one house in Gawis. Everybody else lives in, they're called cave dwellers. They live in these, in these caves. It's in the South Hebron Hills, if any of you know the area. It's in the West Bank, populated, you know, forever by Palestinians. But Jewish Israelis have come in and set up these settlements all through that area and these smaller places called outposts that are small settlements that are even the Israeli government considers illegal, but they don't do anything to stop them. The settlers in that area are particularly fanatic. So you look around on the, on the horizon around this village of 50, 60 people. Uh, on all the hillsides in the distance, you can see these Israeli settlements. Usually they're just uh, mobile homes, kind of trailers with cell phone towers. They really, that's the first thing they build is a cell phone uh, tower so they can use their cell phones. But the Gawis villagers, their lives are uh, really straight out of the Old Testament. They just live by... Uh, uh, maybe Steve can drown them out. I'm not sure I can... They live by uh, sheep. Or they have sheep, flocks of sheep and goats. That's what they do, and a few olive trees. And they, they, so every day they're out, you know, five o'clock in the morning, six o'clock in the morning, out uh, grazing their sheep and goats. That's their lives. And they bring them back in the heat of the day, and then they go out again in the afternoon. And that's what life consists of. Well, the Israeli settlers come down, especially the young guys. They call them hilltop youth. They're constantly harassing and threatening them. They run through the village. One time when I was there, a couple of them came through on horseback, galloping right through the middle of this little community, threatening them and beating them, sometimes invading their, their caves. The government informed people that the Israelis had decided, said this was close to a, it's actually remind me of this, it's close to a Air Force training area. So that people had to leave, the government said. These people have been there forever. Uh, Israelis try to kick them out. When I was there, the particular crisis was about water because the settlers had decreed, there's no legal authority for this whatsoever, they had decreed that the people couldn't come between the road and the village. They had to stay 20 meters and keep their flocks 20 meters away from the road. Well, that meant they couldn't get to their watering hole. So to get water to their animals, they had to use the water that's in the little caves and, and little stone huts are. 
And because of that, the water supply was depleted because all of a sudden you had all these hundreds of sheep and goats instead of just 50 or 60 people drinking out of it. So they were running out of water. So the International Committee for the Red Cross was trying to bring them tanks full of water to keep them alive because nobody's willing to stand up to these settlers who are making up these arbitrary rules about that they can't get the water off their own land. Also, the other thing that happened was that the military came in and claimed that their aerial photography had revealed that they were building without a permit. Well, as, as I said, there's only one house in this place. What the building consists of is they had put these little shelters. They had built some piled up stones to make a walled-in area to keep the sheep and goats. And the Israelis said that was uh, illegal, and they issued a demolition order. I don't have much time, but uh, the end of the story after I left, Valentine's Day of 2007, the military came in with their bulldozers and just destroyed the place, knocked down all the pens and these, these little stone structures they had built, trashed their caves, and drove the people out. I'm not sure what's happened since then. They, they retreated to the, another town nearby where many of them had relatives. Well, I could go. There was a third place I wanted to tell you about Hebron, but uh, I guess I don't have time if anybody wants to chat privately afterwards. But the point I want to make is that if we're serious about peace in the, in the world, we have to be serious about peace in the Middle East. I think we all know that much. If we're serious about peace in the Middle East, we've got to think about peace in Palestine as well as these other, as well as our, Iraq and Afghanistan and Lebanon and whatever, because uh, the conflict in Palestine is at the center of it. And if you're serious about peace in Palestine, You've got to think about justice. You've got to look at it not just from the perspective that we get in the media, which usually, which is the, you know, more or less the Israeli perspective. You've got to look at it. How does the world look from the Palestinian perspective? What it looks like to them is this is their land. They've been there since time immemorial. Christians in Europe were persecuting Jews in Europe. Somehow it became their fault, and they had to get kicked off their land because of that. It doesn't make any sense to them, and it doesn't make any sense to me, and I don't think it should make any sense to you. You know, behind it is the American government, which funds them. Congressman John Dingle, I believe, is the longest-serving uh, congressman, and he's from a district that has a lot of Arab Americans. He boasted that in his time he had put through $300 billion in aid, U.S. government taxpayer dollars, to aid Israel. I don't think that's bringing us any closer to peace. On the contrary. So I would, you know, I would urge people, I know it's not a front-burner issue for most of us, become so for me, but I don't expect everybody to share my uh, perspective on it, but I, I, I think if you are interested in peace, you really do have an obligation to take a look at that issue, to try to look past the conventional wisdom that we get from the American media. Thanks very much. Thank you very much to Henry for your witness there. I think it's a very powerful thing to get that look, you know, on the ground, what's going on there. And uh, we're going to have just about five minutes for questions and answers. If anybody has any questions for both of our speakers, they could come up. And while we do that, I'm going to pass around our bucket. This is the lovely Wheels of Justice bucket. Um, we're funded entirely by donations. So um, if you think this is a valuable thing and you're moved to give, please do be generous. Sometimes we don't even know whether we're going to make it to the next town or not, but I think it's a valuable thing for the American public to get this testimony. So thanks again, and we'll bring our speakers up. Just raise your hand if you have a question, and we'll relay it down. How can we have a two-state solution when the Palestinian areas are so broken up and divided by Israeli? areas and How can you have possibly think of two states? 
that's a long discussion. I would say, theoretically, it's easy. Israel should do what the UN Security Council decreed in 1967 that they had to do, what international law requires, which is to go back to their own borders. It's the pre-67 borders. And, you know, have a Palestinian state side by side. Palestinians would accept that, but unfortunately the Israelis have shown no sign that they're willing to do that. The uh, Geneva Conventions and other international laws say very clearly, in the case of a military occupation, it's unlawful to move your civilian population into the territory that you've occupied. The Israelis, there are about 450,000 people. And we're talking about an area, you know, that's tiny. I mean, the whole together they're about the size of New Jersey or something. By moving in 450,000 people, putting them on every hilltop, building these interconnecting highways, which, are, by the way, are only for, only for Israelis. Palestinians can't use them at all. And then they have buffers all around them and all, military forts, all kinds of stuff. They have made them, as you suggest, so interpenetrated that theoretically the Israeli government could force those people out. I mean, they have the military power to do it, but they don't have the political will to do it. It's more and more clear that they've integrated the electrical grids, the the water system, Except that, you know, the Israelis get four-fifths of the water. But in effect, the Israelis have made it, you know, almost inconceivable that there couldn't be a two-state solution. How do you cut these intertwined populations now in, in the, into two? I don't know. And, you know, more, that means, leads more and more people to think that the only answer is the one that appeals to me. It's not my place to decide for the people there how, how to settle it. But the solution that makes sense in terms of American values is... Uh, a secular democracy where everybody has equal rights, whatever their religion. The land is for the people who live there. You can't say that. It's illegal. They threatened to throw these uh, Arab representatives out of the Israeli parliament for saying it should be a state of all the people, a democratic state for all the people. That's illegal in, in Israel. It's supposed to be a, a Jewish state, privilege the Jewish population. I think, you know, the, the solution that feels right to me is a one-state solution where everybody have equal rights and equal votes and so on. But Israelis are very, Jewish Israelis are very threatened by that because the Arab population will soon outnumber the Jewish population. And um, so if the Israelis won't accept that, a one-state solution, and they've made it impossible to have a two-state solution, <laughs> we've we got a no solution. So that's where it stands, frankly. I can't offer you a, a fix. Well, thanks very much. Once again, the wheels of justice, folks. Very nice job. Just a couple of announcements. We will have Bruce O'Brien playing here on the Labyrinth here in a few minutes. Another quick announcement is, again, our workshops. The Interfaith Peace Builders will be starting a workshop here in minutes in the very back corner of the pavilion. I think that will fall right in line with what Henry just spoke about, and, and it would give you a lot of good information, so we want you to check that out. Also, International Law Workshop will be happening here in a few minutes in Workshop 3. Workshop 2, we have Dennis providing a workshop on the Labyrinth, and then also Workshop 1 at 355 will have Cultural Intelligence. So once again, we'll have Bruce O'Brien here very shortly. Thanks for coming out. You are listening there to Henry Knorr of the Wheels of Justice Tour, my first Spirit in Action guest today. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, host of this Northern Spirit radio program. If you missed the first installment, you can also hear it on my site, northernspiritradio.org. And please remember to drop us a comment about the show while you're there. And please check out our other shows. Lots of wonderful people doing powerful spiritual work for peace, justice, and care for creation. Today's guests were presenters at Voices for Peace 2008, held in Eau Claire on September 14th. More details about that event and the sponsors at VoicesforPeaceInstitute.com. 
www.ghostbusters.org. Next up is musician Bruce O'Brien with a range of songs about peace on many levels. Back to Voices for Peace 2008, Bruce O'Brien, next up. You know this language that I speak is part German, part Latin, and part Greek. With Celtic and Arabic all in a heap, well augmented by the folks in the street. Choctaw gave us the word okay. Vamos is the word from Mexico way, which is just a hint, I suspect, of what comes next. I think that this whole world, soon, mama, my whole wide world, soon, mama, my whole world, soon gonna be get mixed up, soon gonna be get mixed up. I like Polish sausage, I like Spanish rice. Pizza pie is also nice. Corn and beans from the Indians here. Washed down with some German beer. Marco Polo traveled by cannibal and pony. Brought to Italy the first macaroni. And you and I, as well as we're able, put it on the table. I think that this whole world, soon, mama, my whole wide world, soon, mama, my whole world. Soon gonna be get mixed up. There were no red-headed Irishmen until the Danes landed in Ireland. How many Romans had dark curly hair until they brought slaves from Africa? No race of men is completely pure, nor is anyone's mind, and that's for sure. The winds mix the dust of every land. And so do women and men. I think that this whole world, soon, mama, my whole wide world, soon, mama, my whole world, soon gonna be get mixed up. Now this doesn't mean we may all be the same. We'll have different faces and different names. Long live many different kinds of races and differences of opinion. That's what makes horse races. Just remember the rule about rules, brother. What's right with one is wrong with another. And take a tip from La Belle France. Leave la de France. I think that this whole world, soon, mama, my whole wide world, soon, mama, my whole world, soon gonna be get mixed up. Soon, mama, my whole world, soon, my whole wide world soon mama my whole world soon gonna be get mixed up thank you it's a Pete Seeger song song by Bob Blue wrote courage a thing once happened at school that brought us a question for me and caused me to think of ways that I it pays to be cool Roxanne is a girl that I know she's strange like she doesn't belong I don't mean to say that that's wrong we don't like to be with her though and 
And so when we all made a plan To have this big party at Sue's Most kids in the school got the news But no one invited Roxanne The thing about Taft Junior High Is secrets don't last very long I acted like nothing was wrong when I saw Roxanne start to cry. It doesn't make me very proud. It's sad, but you have to at school. You can't pick the friends you prefer. You fill it, fit in as best as you can I couldn't be friends with Roxanne Cause then they would treat me like her At one class at Taft Junior High We study what people have done With gas chamber, bomber and gun at Auschwitz, Japan, and Wounded Knee. I don't understand all I learn. Sometimes I just sit there and cry. The whole world stood idly by and watched while the innocent burned. Like robots obeying some rule, they all went along with the crowd. And what was it for? Was it cool? The world was aware of this hell, but how many cried out in shame? What heroes and her who were to blame? A secret that no one dared tell. I promise to do what I can and not let it happen again. To care for all women and men. I'll start by inviting Roxanne. Thank you. How many people here saw the osprey fishing out here over the river? Wasn't that great? There's uh, there's no F-16 in the world that can uh, that can can beat that. That's that's pretty nice, pretty nice flying out there. And every year we've got crowds of uh, right over here, right in downtown Eau Claire, we got clouds of chimney swifts. Doesn't cost anything to go um, to go watch them every summer. This is a song by Stuart Stotts of Madison, Wisconsin, and it's called "One Crane," and it refers to the the, the story of Sadako Hiroshima survivor who was um, affected by, as millions were affected by the radiation. And she developed leukemia. And she was following the ancient Japanese practice of folding paper cranes for good luck. 
She only, the legend was to fold a thousand paper cranes, but she only got to 600 or something before she died. But the rest of the world heard this story, and into her hometown came thousands of paper cranes from all around the world. One crane, two cranes, three cranes, four. We can make an end to war. Five cranes, six cranes, seven cranes, eight. We can change, it's not too late. Circle of the cranes around the world. From every boy and every girl. Circle of the cranes from hand to hand. In every home, in every land. This is what we call a zipper song. You zip out one word and you zip in another word. It's always different, depending who's who's singing it. So crane is the zipper word. Let's zip in songs. One song, two songs, three songs, four. We can make an end to war. Five songs, six songs, seven songs, eight. We can change, it's not too late. First circle of the songs around the world. In every home, from every girl. Circle of the songs around the world. In every home, from every land. One friend, two friends, three friends, four. We can make an end to war. Five friends, six friends, seven friends, eight. We can change, it's not too late. Circle of the friends around the world. From every boy and every girl. Circle of the friends from hand to hand. In every home, in every land. One dream, two dreams, three dreams, four. We can make an end to war. Five dreams, six dreams, seven dreams, eight. We can change, it's not too late. Circle of the dreams around the world. From every boy and every girl. Circle of the dreams from hand to hand. In every home, from every land. Go back to cranes. One crane, two cranes, three cranes, four. We can make an end to war. Five cranes, six cranes, seven cranes, eight. We can change, it's not too late. Circle of the cranes around the world. From every boy and every girl. Circle of the cranes from hand to hand. In every home, from every land. Thank you. Stuart Stotts. All right. Well, I'm going to sing one more here.
They say the world would be a better place if we could walk in each other's shoes. I wanna walk a mile in your shoes. Walk a mile in your shoes. I wanna know what you're doing, what you're thinking. I really wanna walk a mile in your shoes. Remember the fight that we had? Why do we both have to lose? Because we both walked away mad Instead of walking a mile in each other's shoes I wanna walk a mile in your shoes Walk a mile in your shoes I wanna know what you're thinking, what you're feeling Yes, I really wanna walk a mile in your shoes You see how the world is a mess Every time you turn on the news But everybody could have happiness If we try walking a mile in each other's shoes I wanna walk a mile in your shoes Walk a mile in your shoes I wanna know what you're thinking, what you're feeling Yes, I really wanna walk a mile in your shoes Tempers start to cool down A frown turns into a smile Anger cannot be found When you're wearing those shoes And walking that mile I wanna walk a mile in your shoes Walk a mile in your shoes I wanna know what you're thinking What you're feeling Yes, I really wanna walk A mile in your shoes I wanna walk a mile in your shoes Walk a mile in your shoes I wanna know what you're thinking What you're feeling Yes, I really wanna walk a mile in your shoes. Thank you. Keep up the work you're doing. That was folk musician Bruce O'Brien, a worker for peace on many levels through his music, his work as a nurse, and through lots of political activism. We're going to listen to one more main speaker this week, Eugene Cherry. He's with the Speak for Peace tour, and it was a prime example of what Quakers call way opening that the tour joined us in Eau Claire for this event. As a representative of the local Quaker meeting, I received an email and phone call from the tour organizer, Jessica Flores, offering the possibility of a visit by the Speak for Peace tour sometime in September. Almost simultaneously, I was contacted by the organizers of the Voices for Peace Institute, inviting Quakers to take part in the September 14th event. Way opened, and the Eau Claire Friends meeting sponsored two members of the Speak for Peace tour to come to Eau Claire. I introduced the AFSC staff organizer, Jessica Flores, and she'll introduce to you Eugene Cherry. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, everyone, for coming out. A special thanks to Mark and for everyone else who put this wonderful event together. As Mark mentioned, my name is Jessica Flores. I am from Chicago. I'm from the American Friends Service Committee office. We are a 91-year-old Quaker nonprofit organization. We work for peace and for human rights. We kind of started this Speak for Peace tour earlier this year. We started in February. Our first stop was in Michigan. Since then, we've been to over 10 different cities and towns across the Midwest. And so this is like our third leg of the tour. 
The reason we did this tour is to kind of bring to light stories about the war in Iraq that we don't really, unfortunately, get to hear about through our mainstream media. Specifically, stories from Iraqi people, stories from U.S. veterans. So today we have two speakers. Eugene Cherry, who is from Chicago, Illinois. He was a medic with the U.S. Army. He was stationed in Baghdad from 2004 through 2005. And then we also have uh, Raya Gerard, who's an Iraqi from Baghdad. He has a master's degree in architecture in post-war reconstruction. And he left Iraq in uh, 2004. So I leave you with both speakers. Thank you so much for coming up. Thank you, Jessica. As Jessica was saying, I am an Iraq War veteran. Uh, my name is Eugene Cherry. And I enlisted in the Army in 2002 and, and was discharged from the military in 2007. And I served as a medic in Baghdad with the 10th Mountain Division, Fort Drum, New York, from 2003 to 2007. Um, I deployed to Iraq in 2004 through 2005. And just to tell you a little bit about my experience, I was actually, uh, I was in college when I enlisted to the military. I kind of want to debunk the myth that veterans that you meet all join the military because they want to be patriots and want to do something great for their country. In most cases, that's not true. It's usually guys are joining because they're looking for a way out of their economic situation or looking for a way to fund their way through college. Those same kind of um, ideas apply to myself as well. And just to give you a little brief experience about what it was like for me in the military was that when I enlisted, like I said, I enlisted out of college and, you know, I had this hope of um, going to medical school. And ultimately, I think that was like the major thing that really attracted me to the military was, was this belief that I would go to medical school and complete my college education while I was in the military. Obviously, I'm sitting here before you now to tell you that that didn't happen. But when I deployed to Iraq in 2004 in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom 2.5, I spent about roughly about three and a half weeks in Kuwait doing convoy live fire training. Then I drove from Kuwait into um, Iraq. And keep in mind, the, this was um, during this time, this was before the military had got all the um, armored vehicles that you see the so service members riding around in now. So we actually had what is what we call in the military soft shell vehicles, meaning that they weren't armored. These vehicles that we got were actually hand-me-downs from another unit that was actually leaving Iraq to redeploy back to the U.S., we got these vehicles and they were all beat down, beat up. A lot of them had leaks, very serious leaks. Some of them just didn't work at all. So we were given a week to get everything together and do a quick fix you upper to get the vehicles ready for a trip into um, Iraq. We drove into Iraq, took about four days. Well, the trip almost killed about half of us along the way because either the vehicles caught on fire, some just completely broke down, or, or various other hazards. Anyhow, I got to Iraq, and by the time we got there, the vehicles were done. They, they were trashed, and most of them had to be replaced. And, and the ones that didn't have to be replaced, they were completely just out of action for about a month and a half. And they were sent to um, get repaired and also have armor placed on them as well. And during that month and a half, well, for me it was more like two months, I was actually um, sent to go do work for KBR. Kellogg, Brown & Root, subsidiary of Halliburton. So I ended up doing a little bit of contracting work without the lucrative contract pay. And so I did everything from 
doing what they call local national watch, meaning that we will watch Iraqis, we will watch Romanian nationals, we will watch Pakistani nationals, Filipino nationals. And I imagine that mo many of you here have followed the stories in Iraq about how KBR has hired many nationals from what is considered third world countries, and they literally pay them pennies on a dollar. Most of the contractors that I met from these so-called third world countries were actually being paid roughly about $600 a month, U.S. I did this for about a month and a half, close to two months, and then later I went on to doing combat patrols. I did combat patrols because actually a lot of guys in my unit were sent into Fallujah in November 2004 to participate in the, the Fallujah assault. So I was one of the ones that stayed back, and I ended up having to go out with the infantry guys and do combat patrol. Now, when I went out with there with them, I did everything from cordon search, chased insurgents through, through villages and cities in Iraq, did a variety of things, <laughs> treated Iraqis, such stuff like that. Um, I did this until I went on R&R &R the middle of December of 2004. And when I returned right after the new year of 2005, we got a special mission request. They needed two medics to be a part of a, a, what is known as a PSD team. PSD team means personal security detachment. And this personal security detachment was in charge of providing security for what is known as EOD, explosive ordnance. Explosive ordnance and their civilian equivalent is the um, bomb squad. So these guys would go out and go find IEDs, go find car bombs, weapon caches, whatever they get called out to that was of an explosive or weapons nature, and it was their job to, to deal with it. I did this, I actually kind of, I didn't really volunteer for this mission. I got picked for it because, keep in mind, it's been about six months by that time since I had been in Iraq. About 70% of my unit was still forced to, was continually being forced to do work for KBR. So we didn't even have service members that were actually available to do the missions. What happened was that I ended up doing this mission. That was one mission I did with them in particular. Uh, it was in April of 2005. We got called out to a residential area at around 8 o'clock in the evening for a suspected car bomb. Now, we get out here. It takes about five hours for the EOD finally to decide what they wanted to do with this suspected car bomb. And then they say, well, we're just going to blow it. Yeah, but they said, well, before we blow it, and keep in mind, this is a residential neighborhood that's now five hours from 8 o'clock, so it makes it 1 o'clock in the morning, that they want to blow this car bomb. And so they say, well, we have to evacuate the neighborhood. And so they say, well, we're going to coordinate with the Iraqi police and Iraqi National Guard to get the residents out. So they come back about 30 minutes later and say, everyone is out of the neighborhood. And they blow this car bomb, and the dust didn't even settle before people began to run out of their homes. And there were like, there were lots of casualties. And um, and at the time, we weren't even supposed to respond to this call because it was out of our AO, our area of operation. And so, since we were the only unit on scene, I was the only medical personnel there. It became a situation of a mass casualty. And so, my first casualty that I treated was a young Iraqi boy, about nine years old. He had um, fragments of glass and rock in his um, face from the um, shockwave of the explosion. And um, as I was treating him, my platoon sergeant tells me that they need me to go down the street and go to the actual site of the actual explosion to um, deal with the casualties there. And so as I went down there, 
I ended up walking into the um, apartment building because the, the car bomb itself was actually parked on the side of an apartment building. So when they blew it, pretty much destroyed most of this building. And I ended up walking into the living room of someone, I don't know who, but there were three casualties, two men, one woman. The men were moving around and, and were moaning, but the woman wasn't. So as I go over to check the woman, I tap her on the shoulder, I ask her, is she okay? Can she hear me? And she moans a little bit, but as I go to turn her over, half of her face is blown off. And she also has what is known as an eye avulsion, meaning that her eye was actually out of its orbital. And as I go down, she's, um, she has like this huge wound in her chest, so she's actually having blood that's being forced into her lungs, so she's kind of um, aspirating on her, on her own blood. And as I go further down, she actually has a partial amputation of her right foot. And I start to treat her, and as I start to treat her, there's an Iraqi who shows up who have, he lives in the neighborhood, and he's a surgeon, and he helps uh, me give, give this woman treatment. And as we're treating her, my platoon leader comes up to me and tells me, Specialist Cherry, we, um, do you need a medevac? I say, yes, we need one for her. And so he said, I'll be back in three minutes. I'm going to call in the medevac. But he comes back about three minutes later and says, no, the medevac is canceled. And there's an ambulance on the way to get this woman. So the ambulance shows up about five minutes later. And they just kind of start throwing bodies on this ambulance real nonchalantly. And she was one of the bodies that get thrown on it. And after they put on the ambulance and kind of drive away, I never see this woman again. In fact, I don't even know what happened to her. But um, opportunity says that we have to get out of here because we're not supposed to be here. And so we kind of make a beeline back to the file we were on. I was actually, um, at that time, I was in Camp Victory, Baghdad. It's been called many things through the years, but I don't know what it's called now. We go back, and after that, I actually start to have, like, nightmares and um, start to lose some weight, stuff like that. And some friends told me that I should go see someone. And so I went to go see a psychologist and talked to him about what, well, talked to her about it, told what was going on. They prescribed the usual in the military, give you some um, antidepressants and sleep meds and kind of send you on your way. Shortly after that, I um, redeployed back to the U.S. in um, June of 2000, well, late June of 2005. When I returned, I tried to follow up with the mental health treatment that I was getting in Iraq, but actually ran into some problems from my chain of command and them installing, well, putting in new policies and such that wouldn't allow me to, to actually go see the people that I need to go see. In November of 2005, I actually ended up going AWOL for a while. I actually went AWOL for about 16 months. Now, the funny thing about my AWOL was that they didn't know that um, I was actually AWOL for 16 months, which is kind of interesting because... You know, the military likes to prize itself on being very efficient. But in this case, they weren't. And so I actually continued to see um, psychologists and on the civilian side, not the military side, while I was AWOL. And then eventually they convinced me that, that I needed to turn myself back in. So I turned myself back in in March of 2007. And they had me wait around for about a month and a half. And then they finally decided they wanted to give me a, what is known as a special bad conduct discharge court-martial. And so before I actually turned myself back in, my mother had actually initiated this plan where she would get Barack Obama's office involved, and she ended up found this congressional inquiry through Barack Obama's office, and it turned into a congressional um, investigation. And then to make a long story short, because I'm a little pressed for time here, sorry, they actually released me in the early part of July of last year with honorable discharge, and I came back here and I started working with FSC, and I also volunteer and do veterans counseling and stuff like that 
through this VA program that they have at the Chicago VA. And so I'm going to turn this over to Riot now and let him give you his perspective as an Iraqi. So thank you for your time. That was Eugene Cherry of the Speak for Peace Tour, organized by the American Friends Service Committee, AFSC for short. You can find a link to them on my northernspiritradio.org site, as well as a link to the Voices for Peace Institute. Please listen in next week for a personal interview with Eugene Cherry and the final main speaker of the event, Raed Girard. Raed is one of the most compelling cogent and convincing advocates I've ever heard of a change to U.S. war policy in Iraq. Raed Jarrar is an Iraqi-born U.S. resident and Iraq consultant to the AFSC. Listen to Raed and more from Eugene Cherry next week on Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song, we will move this world along. With every voice, with every song, we will move this world along, and our lives will feel the echo of our healing.